You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Most welcome everyone to this uh, seminar. Uh, and uh, the theme of today is minority rights in the world's largest democracy. Um, for uh, those of you who wonder which country we refer to as the world's largest democracy, um, it is India. Uh, and this is the second out of two seminars that we arrange here at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs on the theme of challenges to democracy in South Asia. And we thank SIDA and Forum Sid for support for these seminars. This morning I was in this room um, talking to about 50 uh, 12th graders about India. And I asked them, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about India? And they replied, cows, bindis, and loads of people. And I was thinking that there are uh, a lot of other things uh, that we uh, really need to know about India. And one thing is its progressive constitution and its safeguards for minority rights. And uh, today we have two eminent speakers that will help us to shed some more light on India's uh, uh, system to safeguard minority rights. And we will also discuss some recent challenges to minority rights in India. And the first speaker will bring us uh, some historical and com uh, historical perspectives on the issue is uh, Dr. Roshana Bajpai from SOAS, University of London. Roshana has um, authored many articles on the topic of minority rights, uh, and her latest book is Debating Difference, Group Rights and Liberal Democracy in India. And we also have Professor Stian Widman from Uppsala University. Um, Professor Widman's uh, research interests um, covers uh, various issues, uh, among them uh, democratic development uh, in uh, countries in South Asia. And your latest book is called uh, Political Tolerance in the Global South, Images from India, Pakistan, and Uganda. Um, we will start with uh, Rochana, who will give us about uh, 15 minutes of uh, historical uh, uh, introduction. And then uh, Stian will take uh, over uh, and give us about 15 minutes as well of a comparative analysis. Uh, and then uh, we will initiate a discussion among us uh, about some recent and current developments related to minority rights in India. And then after that, we leave the floor open for discussion and comments. And this uh, conversation, uh, these uh, introductory remarks will be recorded in a webcast that will be made available uh, on the UV website. But the Q&A and perhaps some part of the discussion earlier uh, will not be included. So if you have questions you want to raise but are a bit uh, hesitant to raise them if they were broadcasted, um, please feel free to, to do that because uh, we will cut the podcast before the Q&A. 
All right. So most welcome, Ruchana. Thank you. Do you want to be, uh, be here? Uh, or I Thank you very much, uh, Henrik and uh, Anna Karen, for um, inviting me and for uh, to you all for coming. It's a pleasure and a privilege uh, to be here uh, with an alumnus from SOAS, uh, uh, where I teach, and with scholars like Stien, whose work uh, on Kashmir in particular has been very influential uh, in the field. Uh, thank you also, uh, Henrik, for the interesting set of framing questions. Um, my brief has been to respond to these questions in fairly general terms before we go on to discuss more specific um, uh, issues in detail uh, later. Um, so that's what I'll try and do, and I'll frame my remarks in response to these questions. So the first question that comes to mind uh, is, um, who are the minorities that we are talking about uh, when we think of minority rights in India. As some of you may be familiar, uh, this is not a straightforward question. Um, there are many, many groups with uh, credible claims to be a minority uh, um, in um, India. In national politics, uh, at the moment, the term mainly denotes religious minorities. Uh, Muslims, in particular, have been India's preeminent minority since the late 19th century, um, uh, the period from which numbers became uh, uh, important. Uh, with um, approximately 180 million uh, Muslims uh, India, that India is home to, it's the third largest Muslim country in the world, uh, but Muslims are a minority of about 14.2% of uh, India's overall population of around 1.3 uh, billion. The other recognized religious minorities are Christians with about 2.3%, um, Sikh, Buddhist, uh, Jain um, uh, are, are the other, uh, and Parsis are the other recognized uh, religious minorities. Uh, however, there are other groups which have also uh, appealed to minority status at various points, notably the ex-untouchables or Dalits, uh, who constitute around 16.6% um, of the population, uh, and are also minorities if we use the term to denote marginalized status. Then there are tribal uh, uh, groups uh, or called scheduled tribes in Indian official uh, language, approximately 8.6 or so percent uh, of the population. And these are sort of massive aggregations of very many, more than 700 different tribes, for instance. Um, and if we look at language, uh, which is another uh, axis of difference, uh, at the subnational level, um, the speakers of India's sort of 22 official languages all can claim to be a minority at, at some uh, regional uh, level in India, in some province. Um, so as you can see, it's quite a complex picture with um, cross-cutting uh, axes of diversity and the religious, minority, uh, the religious majority of Hindus is itself 
divided by language, by caste, um, uh, regional affiliation, uh, by tribe, um, and so on. Um, I want to move on to uh, the Indian Constitution, which is the uh, focus of um, our uh, discussion uh, today. It is now regarded today as ahead of its times in many ways, as uh, having instituted cultural rights for uh, minorities and constitutionalized affirmative action for uh, Dalits uh, uh, and tribal uh, groups um, within a broadly liberal democratic framework um, uh, in 1950. So the constitution was promulgated in 1950. Uh, which makes it uh, one of the earliest to have constitutionalized group differentiated rights. Uh, multiculturalism, as it is uh, known in Western democracies, is, of course, a later development uh, of uh, the 1970s. Um, uh, uh, the kinds of group rights, to give you a, a brief sense in summary, uh, these would include uh, legal pluralism in uh, religious family laws. So there are four separate uh, religious family laws um, uh, for uh, Hindus, Muslims, Christians, and Parsis. Um, Sikhs and Jains are governed by Hindu law, by Hindu personal law, and personal law covers uh, elements of uh, marriage, divorce, inheritance, um, adoption, um, there's a common criminal law, uh, uh, but civil law uh, is differentiated uh, by religion um, under um, uh, the Constitution. Uh, there are also affirmative action provisions, including quotas or uh, reservations uh, in legislatures, in government jobs, uh, and in educational institutions um, for uh, lower caste and tribal groups. Um, and finally, there are self-government rights for uh, linguistic and tribal uh, minorities. So in many ways, these features uh, are predate uh, and uh, presage uh, what we are familiar with uh, in um, multicultural, uh, in terms of multicultural policies um, in Western democracies. Now, why did India choose to constitutionalize minority rights in the first place? Um, it was not inevitable that it would do so, and there were many challenges uh, to the constitutionalization of minority rights, um, which mean that uh, their accommodation in the Constitution itself is flawed in many respects. The Constitution, while progressive, is flawed in uh, many respects, including uh, with uh, in terms of the recognition of minority rights. Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, to, to get to why minority rights were accommodated in the first place, um, as a country that was undergoing a partition along religious lines, which was bitter, bitterly fought and bloody at the time of independence, it was not inevitable that these rights would be uh, recognized that multicultural type provisions would be accommodated. Um, I think uh, there were several factors responsible, of which three um, uh, need to be highlighted um, at this point. 
First, there were historical legacies which uh, favored uh, group differentiated rights. Most recently, um, in the British colonial period, both uh, British administrations as well as Indian princely states had recognized um, forms of special representation uh, mechanisms for religious minorities as well as for uh, Dalits who were then known as depressed classes. Second, the uh, Indian National Movement led by the Congress Party had cast itself as a secular movement which would accommodate uh, uh, multiple religious uh, uh, groups and it had uh, tried to distinguish itself not always successfully, but attempted to distinguish itself as a secular alternative to a uh, religiously uh, defined uh, uh, demand for Pakistan on the part of the Muslim League. And the Congress had made uh, public commitments to the protection of minorities uh, through fundamental rights, through uh, reservations or quotas um, you know, for untouchables, and through a procedure of uh, decision-making through consensus rather than majority rule. Um, these were all um, elements of accommodation of minorities that, that uh, the Congress had committed itself to publicly uh, in uh, the several decades preceding um, Indian independence. And third, the presence in key positions of power of political actors uh, who had a strong commitment to the rights of uh, minorities and Dalits notably uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, India's prime minister, um, who was a staunch uh, defender of secularism, and uh, the chair of the drafting committee, Dr. Bhimrao Ambedkar, who uh, is uh, credited with the constitutionalization of affirmative action and with, uh, of, of, of uh, instituting social justice in a more robust form than Indian nationalists were um, committed to. Um, uh, their presence uh, in the um, uh, in the drafting committee and in the key deliberations around the constitution helped in the constitutionalization of minority rights and affirmative action. Um, who was it that argued for these rights and how were these ideas justified to take further elements from, from the framing um, uh, of today's discussion? Um, the first point of note uh, is that there actually weren't many powerful voices defending minority rights in uh, uh, the Constituent Assembly, um, especially after the partition of the country um, and the departure of many Muslim League leaders who had been strong advocates of minority rights. Um, the um, defenders of um, minority uh, claims um, were on a back foot, uh, if you like, after partition, and there, there weren't as many um, strong and robust arguments for uh, minority rights in the Constituent Assembly as there were in the decades prior to independence. And in fact, there were strong pressures from Hindu nationalists within the Congress to reduce uh, the rights that had been uh, agreed to in the first draft of the Constitution um, of 1948. As in many other countries, um, in India, minority rights were associated with uh, British colonial divide and rule, um, and uh, minorities, um, particularly religious minorities, were seen as a potential fifth column 
um, as, as a threat to state security on account of loyalty to a rival neighboring state. So while India does constitutionalize minority rights, constitution making marked a moment of containment if we look at the long arc or the long uh, uh, history as I, of, of minority rights as I detail uh, in my book. Um, but even so, since they were um, constitutionalized, how were these justified? As I detail in my book, um, the normative vocabulary of Indian nationalism comprised a set of concepts, uh, those of secularism, which were associated with the protection of minority rights, of equal citizenship, um, of democracy, um, of social justice, um, and then finally, national unity and development. So these six or so related interlocking concepts uh, were used. These were the ideas that were used uh, in a range of debates. Um, and there were reasons offered from within this matrix uh, of ideas um, in support of minority rights. So for instance, secularism, uh, which had many meanings uh, that I've written about elsewhere, uh, but one of its key meanings was non-discrimination on religious grounds and equal citizenship, um, religious freedom um, uh, for all, uh, and for all individuals as well as groups. Um, um, so groups were recognized as subjects of uh, rights as well as individuals in a departure from the sort of standard liberal uh, position. However, as I've also uh, detailed elsewhere, um, the protection of cultural difference remained under-supported in Indian nationalist opinion at the time of constitution making. So although minority rights were institutionally accommodated in normative terms in relation to this vocabulary, um, they remained under-supported. Uh, and both liberal ideas of equal individual rights and nationalist ideas uh, of the requirements of national unity converged, uh, if you like, to uh, limit uh, the normative resources for um, um, minority rights that were uh, institutionally accommodated. So the Indian constitution accommodates these institutionally, uh, but Indian constitution makers, and I would argue subsequent policy makers, um, did not really elaborate a normative, a robust normative framework uh, 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 for uh, these uh, rights. Um, third, uh, um, uh, to go to, if we're looking at ideas for justifying minority rights, to go to the cognate area of affirmative action, there, there, were, there was some attempt at elaboration of uh, um, normative resources for uh, defending uh, group differentiated rights. So in the case of the uh, untouchable and tribal groups, uh, 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 I referred to them as uh, Dalits, uh, also referred to as Adivasis in um, Indian uh, uh, debates. Um, and these, are e these were easier to accommodate within a liberal nationalist framework on grounds of social justice, so on grounds of sort of social advancement of social and economic advancement of historically disadvantaged groups, and on grounds of national unity and development. So the idea was that um, these uh, groups had remained socially segregated, 
uh, from the mainstream because of their uh, disadvantage. And affirmative action provisions, such as quotas, uh, would enable, would produce sort of vertical leveling and thereby greater horizontal integration, thereby greater national unity. So you can see how a key nationalist concern is sought to be reconciled with group rights in the case of untouchable and tribal groups. And similarly with development, the goal was to catch up with the West, to industrialize, um, and uh, this was seen to require um, com uh, positive uh, uh, discrimination um, uh, as a temporary measure uh, uh, to boost uh, so-called backward uh, groups. And this is a term, backward is a term used in official uh, debates uh, in the short run um, uh, for uh, groups that were seen to drag, drag the nation down and inhibit its progress. But such provisions were accommodated as temporary um, affirmative action provisions rather than as multicultural <coughs> rights uh, uh, in the strong sense. So what the Indian Constitution marks is a shift, if you like, from consociationalism to affirmative action as the overall framework for, for uh, uh, group differentiated rights. Finally, in the last part of my remarks, do I have five or so more minutes? Okay, how has the debate changed over time? I want to highlight three areas before handing over to Stian. Uh, first, despite India's sort of surviving as a nation state um, and um, uh, many um, positive developments uh, over the years, um, with regard to uh, the normative deficit of minority rights, that has remained and expanded in Indian policy debates. Um, and um, this, there, there hasn't been a, in subsequent, by subsequent policy makers, uh, there hasn't been a elaboration of a vision for how minority multicultural rights are a benefit for the whole society uh, um, um, rather than just, for instance, for the groups concerned. So the society-wide benefits uh, uh, of minority rights have not been elaborated by Indian uh, policymakers. And in some sense, the long shadow of partition continues to constrain uh, uh, political thinking um, on this uh, uh, question. And there's been a tendency uh, institutionally, um, as well as uh, in social practice, uh, for the erosion of uh, minority rights uh, uh, over time. Um, and uh, with regard to religious freedom, uh, so despite the Indian constitution having a very expansive right to religious uh, freedom in terms of uh, the freedom to profess, practice, and pro propagate religion, uh, which extends to groups as well as individuals, um, many provinces, many states have enacted laws which uh, restrict uh, the freedom of uh, religious minorities. Um, for instance, uh, the anti-conversion laws, um, um, which um, have been used um, uh, to target Christian missionaries and you know, for violence uh, um, um, against uh, uh, Christian um, minorities, um, and uh, laws uh, banning uh, cow slaughter, which uh, most Indian states uh, have enacted. Um, these go against uh, the constitutional right uh, uh, 
to uh, uh, religious freedom, but they continue on um, the books of many Indian state governments. And the pattern has been that once um, majority beliefs are enacted into laws in this, in this manner, uh, they are then used by vigilante, majoritarian vigilante groups to target religious minorities, in particular Christian and Muslim uh, uh, minorities, and have become uh, in, um, uh, a pretext uh, for killings, for violence, and harassment uh, of uh, religious uh, minorities um, in India. Um, and um, there is a, a, a pattern whereby there's little public condemnation of such violence because um, then uh, it seemed to, um, uh, if you like, be in accordance with some laws, even though laws um, which, which go against fundamental constitutional provisions. Um, and um, yeah, um, there's uh, the prosecution of those who engage in such acts has been very uh, limited, and courts have continued to grant bail, for instance, to those, to those who have uh, um, engaged in um, acts of uh, killing and violence against minorities. Um, the second trend or broad tendency, um, although in the Indian constitution the effort was to limit affirmative action uh, to um, Dalits and Adivasis, to the scheduled castes and tribes, um, and to limit uh, the categorization of Dalits to those who are Hindu, Sikhs, and Buddhists. Um, over time, uh, affirmative action has come to be extended to new groups, including intermediate lower castes. Um, uh, uh, these include some religious minorities, some Muslim and uh, uh, Christian groups. Um, some governments, including the previous Indian national government uh, under Prime Minister Manmohan Singh, um, sought to uh, include religious minorities, particularly Muslims, within the ambit of uh, affirmative action, um, uh, instituting um, a uh, commission which uh, has uh, extensively documented the socio-economic disadvantage that Muslims um, in India um, uh, suffer from with on a range of uh, criteria. Um, uh, uh, rendering, if you like, Muslim disadvantage visible uh, for the first uh, uh, time. Um, and there have been uh, demands, uh, many demands from Muslim leaders following uh, um, uh, the publication of uh, this uh, uh, report, the Prime Minister's um, uh, high-level committee report, which is called the Satcher Committee Report. There have been demands for the uh, inclusion of Muslim Muslims in particular within the ambit of reservations for uh, Dalits or scheduled castes. And typically, uh, the ideas that have been used to justify such claims have been those of non-discrimination, of equality of opportunity, um, with Muslim leaders saying that if such affirmative action benefits extend to Hindu uh, disadvantaged groups, why should Muslims be excluded from them simply on grounds of religion, that's discriminatory on religious grounds. Uh, uh, these demands, it's important to note, um, are uh, have focused on issues of discrimination and disadvantage. That's where 
most um, uh, Muslim uh, claims uh, in the contemporary period have focused rather than on multicultural type of uh, rights for, if you like, cultural uh, recognition. Um, third, in India as elsewhere, uh, we see affirmative action provisions creating uh, resentment against uh, uh, the beneficiary groups as well as new demands for inclusion. Um, the uh, resentment um, uh, on the part of uh, upper caste or um, uh, middle uh, caste Indian voters has um, is seen to have contributed to the rise of Hindu nationalism, uh, which is uh, the most powerful political force in uh, uh, contemporary uh, uh, India today. Um, it has also led to demands for uh, subcategorization movements, for instance, uh, to target uh, uh, benefits of uh, quotas and other affirmative action uh, uh, to the most <coughs> deprived subcasts, uh, uh, for instance, uh, among Dalits. Um, and um, finally, there have been recent mobilizations uh, for affirmative action um, by educationally disadvantaged uh, uh, rural groups, uh, whether it's Jats or Patidars or Marathas, uh, um, who have sought to claim backward status so that uh, they can be included uh, within uh, the ambit of um, affirmative action. Governments have tended to give in to demands from electorally numerous, uh, electorally powerful groups, which in turn has led to increasing resentment and opposition uh, um, uh, to such policies and growing support uh, for the Hindu right. So in conclusion, India exemplifies in some ways the tensions between growing majoritarian nationalism and uh, protections for minorities or minority rights that is, if, if you like, uh, it's the central political challenge of our times that democracies across the world uh, are grappling with. Okay, I'll stop there. Thank you very much for this. Okay, thank you very much for inviting me here, Henrik. And I'm very glad that you're here, Rochana, because uh, there would be difficult questions here about the, the reservation systems and things like that, which I will happily uh, refer to you for, <laughs> because it is a very complicated system and it's in its history, which you handle very well. It's it's uh, it's something which you e you can't easily grasp. It's very. Uh, I think that it's, uh, it's, it's an immense challenge to try to follow what's happening in India because it's such a huge country. So some of the things that I will say are, of course, simplifications and examples and so on. But I will try to capture some trends as well because that's important too. And that's why we're here to talk about broader trends as well. I work in a uh, research project called Toledo and it stands for Tolerance and Democracy and uh, where we specifically have studied India and Pakistan and Uganda over some time. <clears throat> and uh, I will depart uh, from some of these findings that comes from this project, but I will have to take some help 
to give the broader picture from other researchers as well. That's what happened when we pushed that button. Here we go. So first, let's realize that India has defied many of the predictions of downfall and collapse and so on. This has been going on for a long time. So uh, one should be very careful before one judges a, a country like India because there is resilience and there are certain things in its society which uh, uh, can actually w work towards dem democracy, which we can't see from the researcher point of views, from the journalist point of views, and so on. And India has gone through so many things. It has avoided the Pakistan fate, and uh, there has been a, a marvelous decrease in famines. There's a literacy revolution, which that has led to the control of rep rep reproduction for women, small families by, by that. And we see ethnic peace in large parts of the countries most of the time, actually. And uh, there is democracy, economic development, regional powers that are coming up and making themselves heard. And Paul Brass have argued uh, for a long time that India gets its strength from its diversity. It is a, it's, it's like an inbuilt protection for India. So the diversity of India protects it, uh, protects it from, uh, from within. And... Um, Yadav, Linz, and Stepan builds on this when they explain that India is a state nation, not a nation state. It, not a nation state. It builds from below upwards. In Europe, Europe, the history of Europe, you have seen how nation states have been created, right? And uh, you have decided to have one official language and so on, and then you shape the country after that, and then you create the myth of your own nationalism, of course. But here, India is different. It builds on something from below and upwards. And doing so, it has protected minorities. And by doing things like the reorganization of the states in India in the 1950s, India has been quite stable. It's, it's a very special case. However, though, there are very many challenges here to uh, India's democracy and thereby also its minorities. And we will talk about this a little bit more in the discussion, I think, how these things connect. Democracy, secularism, and the protection of minorities. And these are just some of the things that India has been struggling with and uh, things that have been threats to India's democracy and thereby also many of its uh, minorities as well. And now, today, I will talk a little bit what, about what has happened to India in the more recent years, how has India changed because of Hindu nationalism and how the Sangh Parivar, which consists of several organizations, which are uh, a part of the of the whole this whole family uh, of uh, organizations, the RSS, the VHP, and the BHP, who create a political system which is new to India, and how they build also on organizations below, like the Shiv Sena, Bajrang Dal, and so on. What's happening in India today is that we have a party which is building a Hindu Rashtra, and that can actually be translated to an ethnic state where you actually say that there is a precedence, there is a special status for one ethnic group over others. And this is happening right now. We'll talk about this. This is a part of the politics which is pursued by the BGP, led by Narendra Modi. And we know Narendra Modi uh, before, because he was the chief minister in Gujarat. He was also the chief minister in Gujarat in 2002, during the massacres against uh, uh, parts of the Muslim population there. So now we're going to talk about the situation from minorities like this. We're going to talk about threats, attacks, institutions, democracy, and we're going to do this in a very quick pace 
but in a comparative perspective, okay? From my own research, studying, comparing India and Pakistan and Uganda, India is a much better place because it has a certain type of liberalism and you can see that it has a vibrant democracy and mostly consists of liberally oriented groups which are competing for power all the time. There are tensions, there are situations where you can actually have violence breaking out and so on, but most of the time it doesn't. People are really fighting and competing with each other in, in a non-violent way. When it comes to minorities, we can see that, well, several minorities have some protection, but some have almost none. But if you compare to, for example, Pakistan, well, a lot of minorities, very many minorities have no protection at all. And if you go to Uganda, it depends very much on the alliances that are made with the sitting government. And this has been made on a religious and a tribal basis, you could say. It's a very different system. But uh, it can actually hit very hard against some minorities as well. When I study, when I do my studies on political tolerance, which means that we go uh, and ask people to what extent they're ready to let people or parties or groups hold power even if we dislike them very much. That's political tolerance. And we have to draw the line somewhere. We can, of course, let the extremely intolerant to have power because giving tolerance towards them would be the collapse of democracy. So we have to be careful when we, which group we discuss with people, with citizens, when we talk about their level of tolerance. However, though, when we study this, we look at the individual factors and we look at contextual factors. And I'll, what I'm going to talk a little bit about today, very quickly, is stuff which uh, has to do with this, regime-type threat and divisions in society along certain lines. This factor is one of the strongest determinants, uh, uh, the most important factor that will decide whether a person is tolerant or not. Same thing in most places in the world today. That is a very, very important thing. So we're going to keep that uh, in mind when we move forward here. But the conclusion is that India is a better place than Pakistan and Uganda with regard to the minority situation, absolutely. But this is changing. And we have to look at certain changes uh, to be prepared and to understand what's going on here. So I will now describe certain trajectories. Let's see. Is there a pointer here? Okay, we'll look at some trajectories very quickly. Amrita Basu has written a very important book called Violent uh, Conjunct uh, Conjunctures in Democratic India. And she speaks about what's happened, what happens when you have one party at the national level and all of a sudden you have the same affiliated party at the state level and then these forces hook up with uh, alliance, uh, they align with similar forces on the ground. That is what Amrita Basu calls a perfect storm. The, then you have, if you have a right-wing government hooking up with a right-wing uh, extremist nationalist government at the state level, hooking up with Bajrang Dal kind of organizations on the ground, you can get a situation like the one in Gujarat you will have a propensity or high risk for actually attacks on the larger scale against minorities. So this is something she warns for, and we have to keep that in mind. 
But then you can ask, how is this different from before? How is it different from 1984, for example, when uh, several thousands of Sikhs were killed after the assassination of Indira Gandhi, for example? So we'll have a look at that at trends now, very quickly. Now I'm going to use a lot of information that comes from the Varieties of Democracy project, which I've been uh, to some extent involved in myself, but not so much. And I'm also criticizing some of the measurements sometimes, and I'll come back to that. But here, if you measure freedom of religion according to uh, Varieties of Democracies like Freedom House or Polity 4, they come out with yearly reports and data sets on how democracy and freedom in the world is, 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 is doing this. We look at freedom of religion, to what extent people can actually choose their own religious affiliation and so on. You can see that uh, not that much has really ha uh, changed, because this scale, which you can't see because the, it's too light here, this is 2014. This is over time. Here we go back all to the 1980s. So it's been pretty much you know, the same thing here in India. This is India. Okay? I compare here, here also to the United States, Sweden, Pakistan, South Africa, Germany, United Kingdom as well. And we're not going to go into the details about this, but we can see there's a small dent downwards here. We can also see that in the world in general, there is also a dec decline when it comes to freedom of religion. Okay. Then we go to uh, something called the Liberal Democracy Index. And here they put a lot of things together at once. How the elections are being done, how well citizens are being protected, how civil liberties are doing. They're put, put together in a larger index. And here we go for India again with the, with the uh, red arrow. And this is 2014 again. And here we can see a dent and it's going down here. But we can see other stuff. It's not very stable either before. Here we can see a general decline as well. And then we come to freedom of academic and cultural expression. You can understand what that is without me explaining for you. And here we can see that it's been very flat for India like this. And it goes down here. Yeah, it goes down in 2014 with the BJP government coming to power. But it was going down before as well in 2012. You could see a decline starting then under the Congress party being in power. Now we can see something similar here when it comes to freedom of expression and alternative sources of information index. Same thing here. You see a dent here, but it keeps going down for India here. And it goes quite rapidly downwards here. So it's harder to get alternative sources of information in India today than before. And then we have freedom of political killings. You can see here that India, again, has been going down. You can see then downwards 2004, uh, after 2014, and it's on a steady lower level since then. Same thing again, though. More of that in the West and other parts of the world as well, unfortunately. And then we have something called the Deliberative Democracy Index. It's similar to the Liberal Democracy Index, but it contains more about how what kind of dialogues people have, groups have, political parties have in society about political issues. And here you can see some more dramatic changes, actually. This is 2008 here, and this is India. So you have first a big slide downwards here, and then after 2014, after the election, when BTP came to power, it could, be, have, been started, it could have started to go up again here, 
but instead it's going rapidly downwards. But you can see this in other places, like the United States of America, for example, as well. This is very depressing from an overall democratic perspective, of course. But India is, is in particular doing not so well, or actually bad in, in this sense. And then I have a final illustration here, which is terrible because all the it's hard to read this. Here uh, we have two points in time in measurement. 2017 is indicated by red. And then we have 1983 here indicated by blue. And we have different scales here, deliberative democracy here, liberal democracy index here. And we have religious organization consultation here, which I will tell you about soon. Freedom of religion and freedom of expression and alternative sources of uh, information. For a long time in the 1990s, the, the reverse trend was the truth. You could see how freedoms were expanding in many places of the world. And that is because of what happened after this, the, uh, the Cold War stopped and there were so many more countries that became democracies. And there was a big wave for democracy. So you would see certain things that we associate as democracy or indicate democracy and all and so on. You would see that sphere expanding. What is happening now here in India is that you see that the, uh, the sphere is contracting again. It's going backwards. Development is going backwards. Except for this thing here then. Religious organization consultation. And this is a tricky indicator because when it was created by Varietas and Democracy team, that put together these measurements, they thought in communitarian terms. They imagined that if a government was open to consulting civil society and also its religious groups, it would be less authoritarian, it would be more open. However, though, the problem with this is that it can also indicate how religious groups can get more influence in a government in, in non-secular terms, on non-secular terms. The measurement doesn't show how lopsided the relationship between one group and the government can be also. So you can have also, you can have a situation where one group, they're getting a lot of access to the government. They are basically, the government or the prime minister's office is basically open to some groups. That would give a high indicator on religious cooperation uh, organization consultation that would give something a high indicator like that and unfortunately this is in all likelihood what's happening in India that you have the influence of one particular religious group increasing rapidly in terms of having access to the government and that means when you look under the surface of this variable that other groups are being shut out they're being uh, they can't get in so that is, um, these are very general things. What is this different now? Well, we have certain things here which are challenging. Attacks on Muslims, Christian Dalits, secularists, journalists, social activists, forced conversions mentioned before here also. You have a civil society which is more politicized in a lopsided way. You know, we studied political, uh, civil society for a long time in political science and sociology. And we assumed that it was all good for democracy, right? Until somebody pointed out, well, Germany and during the Weimar Republic had very strong civil society too, and was used to, to, to persecute the youth, you know? And we have such strong 
strong trust organizations like the bandidos or the mafia as well. But it's problematical, this thing with civil society. Civil society in itself is not a good thing for democracy, which Amrita Basu shows very well in her study. In any case, we see more of a politicized civil society, and we see this, the culture of fear spreading to new places, and how the curriculum in schools are changing, that's been going on for a long time. But the culture of fear spreading to new places is a very serious thing, because you actually don't need very much of each one of these to get this thing going. So you can just have a few attacks, people will feel fear, and then you will have this kind of a spiral of things where, when political tolerance decreases. So how has the situation changed for minorities in India? Well, if you look at Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, Polity 4, Varieties uh, and Democracy, and, and uh, Freedom House, what they say, well, it's not going... Uh, Pew, Institute, uh, uh, Pew uh, Service show this as well. Uh, it, it, the, the situation is becoming tougher for minorities in India. That, that is the, that's the message. And in the longer run, we can see things happening here, which I'm not gonna, I'm just going to finish here. But we can see that this is not unique to India. I mean, this as the some of these things you saw before, uh, we can see that democracy in general is not doing good in the world. We can see, uh, for example, Free, uh, Freedom House has shown that democracy has been in decline for 13 years now. Uh, freedom of the media is going rapidly down. Only 13% of the population on this planet can enjoy absolutely free access to information. 13. Otherwise, you will live in some place where there are some restrictions or very large restrictions. And uh, so this is a general problem. Uh, you could say that, absolutely, yes. But there are certain things which are specific for India as well, which we can discuss here. And I'm, I, I don't say, I'm not saying that this is collapsing or anything like now, but there's a downward trend. And what I'm the most afraid of maybe now, which is the realistic thing, is that India goes silent on this development, that people don't, people fear to express what, what they see and what they experience. I, I see this when I go to India for research. We can't do research anymore like we used to, because people are afraid that if they're associated with the study which the Hindu nationalists will get hold of, they will be threatened, the organization will be shut down, they will lose their capacity or their rights to uh, get funds from abroad, things like that. And people fear for their lives as well. So th this is serious. And uh, if you have a culture of fear like that, you are turning into something like uh, what Vladislav Surkov designed Russia, and that is the managed democracy model, where you uphold elections today, in general. Authoritarian states without election are rare. So you'll see elections, yes, absolutely. But you will see how you have a state which developed towards something more like what Orban speaks about, the liberal democracy kind of model. That is the real danger, I think, that it's not that it's going to collapse or anything like that. I don't think it's going to do that. But that you see these small um, cuts into certain rights over time, and you get used to that, and then you take away a few, a few more rights again. And then you have a managed democracy. Okay, thank you.
Find us on www.ui.se. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.